Can you hear me? Yes, no? No, yes? Okay, good. Christmas is almost upon us, and um, today and next week we're going to be looking at uh, biblical Christmas themes um, as we approach this time of uh, celebration. And um, today we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 1, and beginning at verse 18, and uh, the slide will come up on the screen just to remind you. And uh, the title today is Emmanuel, God with us. We've already sung that. And, uh, and just to ex- help to, uh, to um, punch the message home, as it were. So we're, we're talking about, this morning, about the incarnation. God becoming man. And over the years, I've heard people ask the question, what's the minimum I have to believe to be a Christian? As if it was a matter of ticking boxes. We're all used to ticking boxes these days, aren't we? Questionnaires and you tick boxes. But with this mindset, one of the boxes I think that they probably wouldn't tick would be that of the incarnation, the virgin birth. Or more properly, we should say the virgin conception, because Jesus' birth was the same as yours and mine, probably just as messy. All right? But the virgin birth of Jesus Christ has been challenged from earliest times. But as we will affirm again today, it's an essential ingredient on what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, God's good news about his redemptive plan for mankind, the hope of the world. Without it, I go as far as to say there is no gospel. Without the incarnation, there is no gospel. I'm going to ask just um, consider some mission feasibility questions, all right, just to get us thinking. God's on a mission. So, how could God save human beings from the consequences of sin? Those things that spoil and pollute our lives uh, and keep us from God. How could God enter fully into human experience and still be God? How could God be spirit yet make himself fully known to human beings? How could God be almighty and yet convince weak and suffering human beings that he understands? How could God satisfy both his love and his justice in dealing with our sin? How could God be born into the world of David's family line. That was the prophetic word concerning the Messiah. He would be the son of David. How could he do that and yet not inherit the sin of Adam? So God embarked on a rescue mission uh, which answers all these questions and more. The incarnation is a divine mystery which with our finite minds we find it hard to fathom. But much is revealed in the scripture and hopefully we'll look at some of those things today. God uses natural and supernatural means to accomplish his purposes. So let's read the scripture then. Matthew 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father God, we're peering into Wonderful mysteries today. Lord, we ask you to help us to embrace them even if we don't fully understand all that's been going on. Help us to embrace this mystery and worship you all the more, Lord. Amen. Okay then, the virgin birth, or as I said more properly, the virginal conception, it's been challenged and attacked from earliest times. There's first what we might call the rational challenge. In other words, there must be another explanation. Those people wanting to embrace some form of Christianity often stumble over the miraculous. Things like the parting of the Red Sea for Moses and the children of Israel. Um, Jesus walking on water. And um, Jesus feeding the 5,000 that we heard about already this morning. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I kind of like to see television programs that, that want to look into um, biblical stories and events and so on and how they ha did they happen and was there a natural explanation and it seems to me that the program makers always want to err on the side that there is a natural explanation something miraculous is usually not even considered but there's no problem for God who spoke and the universe came into being. There's no problem for God intervening in our human history with supernatural occurrences to accomplish his purposes. Here's what Luke records of the angel's answer to Mary's question, having found herself being told that she would bear the Son of God. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's where we must start, mustn't we? That God is far and above us. His intelligence, his ability, and so on, is far above us. And we can be confident to say nothing is impossible with God. So human rep reproduction is an awesome process and a testimony to the amazing um, design of God. I've said it before, but I love those television programs where you see babies born. I, I just think it's wonderful. I just like the reaction of the parents and so on. It's just terrific. And even some atheists have a moment of wonder when a baby is born. Why cannot God take this, his natural process that he has designed and intervene 
to fertilize Mary's egg and bring about conception without human assistance. Well, I think a big, good place to start is to look at the details that are recorded for us in the scriptures and particularly um, be helpful to consider the um, marriage and betrothal arrangements in those days. So, Jewish betrothal. Uh, it's not like our engagement. It was binding and it lasted about a year and it could only be broken by death. The man was already the woman's husband, as you see in verse 19. The marriage was completed when the husband took his betrothed to his home. Only then did sexual relations begin. So, Joseph's dilemma. His first response was damage limitation, um, trying to make the best of a bad job. Until the angel visited him, he had no knowledge of God's plan. There's no evidence that Joseph and Mary had any warning uh, that this momentous thing was coming about. Mary first knew and had to break the news to Joseph. And although, as we'll see later, Mary's acceptance of God's will was absolutely magnificent, having to, uh, to tell Joseph and also face, face the social consequences of pregnancy uh, must have been huge. And she was probably about 12 or 13. That's the age that women were married in those days. However much Joseph was a, a loving and godly man, when your betrothal comes to you with the story that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, you could be forgiven for reacting negatively, at least at first, until he was told what was behind it all. The natural assumption would be Mary has been unfaithful. It's interesting that... Um, in John's Gospel, later talking about the, the ministry of Jesus, um, it may be that the Pharisees were referring to rumours about um, Jesus' birth when they said to him, we were not born in sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. So verse 19 talks about public disgrace. By law, if she had been subject to public trial, she would have been stoned to death. For adultery. However, by this time, when divorce was a more um, popular option, Joseph chose the alternative of a private hearing before two witnesses. This supports the fact that Joseph was not the cause of Mary's pregnancy. Otherwise, he would have taken her home straight away and none would have been the wiser. Therefore, we conclude that it was God who intervened. So Mary was a virgin and Joseph was not the biological father. So right from earliest times, heresies have arisen inside and outside of the church, challenging the incarnation, either in fact or in detail. In the second century, there was the challenge of adoptionism, which was that Jesus was an extraordinary man um, whom God the Father adopted at his baptism, maintaining that the divine being Christ uh, came as a spirit upon the earthly man Jesus at his baptism, but departed before his crucifixion. During the first century, there were those who held the view that it was unworthy of God, who was pure spirit, to be tainted by flesh. Uh, that this view was threatening the church is borne out by the Apostle John's uncompromising attack on such thinking, which seems to have begun in his day when he writes in his first letter. This is the first letter of John, 
and chapter 1. I love these words. It's John reveling in the fact that he had experienced Christ. That, that Christ on earth, Jesus, the Son of God on earth. And just listen to his wonderful words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. And then in his second letter, he insists this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So they were the attacks in early days. But today, however, the battle is on a different front. It's not the humanity of Jesus which is in doubt, but his deity. Even in some parts of the church, uh, we are presented with a more acceptable humanist alternative to tr traditional understandings. And in the secular world, as much as the musical Jesus Christ Superstar um, literally put Jesus on the stage of the world, all right, the song that was sung by Mary Magdalene, Mag Magdalene, I don't know how to love him, has the words, he was a man, just a man. And that kind of reinforces the point that for many people, Jesus was just an exceptional man, no more. But John's Gospel, at the beginning, he introduces us to the Word, uh, the Word of God, who was, has been there from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God. And he's talking about Jesus. And then later, in verse 14, he said, the word Christ became human, sorry, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighbourhood. That's what the message says. And then Paul in Colossians says this, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So here we have the uniting of deity and humanity. So that was the, the rational challenge. And then we have the challenge of genealogy. That is the family line of Jesus. Early, the early verses of chapter 1 are called the genealogy of Jesus Christ and they chart the family line from Abraham to Jesus through Joseph. Now then, we've already established that, that Jesus was not Joseph's biological son. So is Matthew's uh, genealogy irrelevant? Is, is Joseph redundant? No, actually he's a key player still because this is how it works. Under Jewish law, in taking Mary home and naming the child, Joseph became Jesus' legal father. Uh, so he became his legal father and from then on he would always be known as the father of Jesus and Jesus would always have as his father Joseph so here we have it Jesus is legally King David's son as foretold by the prophets so here we have this amazing mystery but I believe 
there is in fact an even greater mystery. If we acknowledge that the virgin birth is true, but nevertheless a great mystery, there is, I believe, a greater mystery at work here. We know that God is revealed in the scripture as one God, one in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, which the church has come to call the Trinity. That word is not in the Bible, but it's the best way that we have of describing one God in three persons. And here's the question. If the Son became a human being and was here among us with all the earthly limitations that we know, what was going on in the Godhead? Okay, what was going on in the Godhead when Jesus was born as a human being? So very importantly, we must not think as the Son as having left a sort of gap in the Godhead, a vacancy in the Trinity and it is coming to earth as a man. And from all eternity we know that Jesus in his divine nature, uh, God the Son, filled all things and was in all things in, and, and in all places at all times. This did not alter with his incarnation. What was new was that this same divine being became personally united with human nature at its earliest stage. He took it as his own. In this way, the second person of the Trinity truly and personally became a one-celled embryo in the body of a young woman. And this is how one um, commentator put it. Although he became what he was not, he did not cease to be what he was. He who continued to fill all things and sustain all things also became contained in a virgin's womb and was sustained by a human mother. John Calvin, the French Protestant reformer of the 16th century, said this, Here is something marvellous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way, without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in a virgin's womb. Consequently, as we, stress, as we stress the fullness of his deity, we must also stress the fullness of his humanity. Jesus was and is not merely God in the form of man, but God in the nature of man. Not God in disguise, rather like the scarlet pimpernel, but God in the flesh. He did not only come among us, he became one of us. He became one of us. In his humanity, he felt pleasure and pain. He cried, he laughed, he suffered and was tempted as a man and yet without sin. The mystery and the message of the incarnation is that in Jesus, God acquired manhood and the deity became a member of the human race. There is, of course, no adequate human analogy to this or explanation of it. Very often when we're preaching, we like to find um, something as an analogy of what we're trying to say. And we'll tell you a story or we'll do something. There is nothing here at all. There is nothing to explain it. For in all the world and in all the universe, there is no greater mystery. No greater mystery. But if Jesus of Nazareth is not God in our humanity, then God has not come to us. God has not shared our pain and borne our guilt. God has neither spoken the final word necessary 
for our peace, nor done the final deed necessary for our justification, that is to make us right with God. He is not our saviour and the hope of the world. I just want to look at the necessity of the incarnation. Why was it that God had to do it this way? Why was it that in order to save mankind, God had to do it the way that we've described? Just to help us understand this, let me take you back um, to a few weeks when we were studying Paul's letter to the Romans. And you remember we were looking at the Gospel and the foundation of the Gospel is there is bad news and there is good news. And that we have to understand the bad news in order for the good news to actually seem to be good news. And the foundation of the Gospel is the bad news is that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no exception. We've all missed the mark and we're under God's righteous judgment against sin. He is angry that sin has spoiled and polluted his creation and because he is just, he cannot overlook our sin. Because if he did, he would not be a righteous judge and it would hardly be loving to the victims of sin. No, we expect God to be just and to judge the world in righteousness. We would only want that kind of God. So how can God, who loves us and wants to give us his righteousness, do so without compromising his justice? Well, God does not set aside his justice. You may remember, he turns it upon himself. He turns the punishment that was due to us he turns it upon himself. But how could God, who is spirit, suffer for the sins of man, who is flesh and blood? How could God take upon himself all human suffering and the penalty for sin? It was a human penalty he had to bear. It was a human nature he had to acquire. He had to become a true member of the human race to be our saviour. It, it had to be that way. It had to be a man, a perfect man, who was our substitute and was an acceptable sacrifice. So through, throughout history there have been repeated challenges, but I'm pleased to say that the church has stood firm in all this, even from the beginning. And um, uh, in AD uh, 325, uh, the church robustly repelled the challenges to the virgin birth and the uh, divinity of Christ in the Nicene Creed. If Paul would like to put that up on the screen. Okay, I don't know if you can see past the mobiles and, and all that. So this is just part of it reproduced. We don't normally say this, do we, together? But I think it would be good to do so. If you can see it from where you are. Okay, let's say it together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, 
by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So that's the testimony of the church through the ages. And we need to continue, continue to make that confession. So what's our, what's our response to that? I think it's only worship. We just stand in awe and wonder of uh, the amazing God, how God devised such a plan and how effective it was in dealing with our sin. So just um, as we kind of look towards the end, let's look at a, a, a few other things that we find in this text. Let's ask the question, Mary, who was she? Well, some people would um, naturally call her the, the Blessed Virgin Mary, or BVM for short. Um, and around the world she is revered and considered by some um, to have an ongoing role in God's uh, redemptive plan. Um, some branches of the church pray to her as someone who is close to Jesus. But the scriptures give no grounds for such treatment. There's nothing of those things in the Bible. But she was a humble, faithful woman whom God chose to bear his son on earth. She was the natural contribution to God's supernatural act. After the birth of Jesus, she went, to have, went on to have other sons and, and, and daughters. Uh, in Matthew 13, we read James, Joseph, Simon, Judas and unnamed daughters. But she is worthy of honour and a wonderful example of submission to the will of God. Mary said to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That word is bondservant or slave. Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then later when she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, um, who was there pregnant with who we know to be John the Baptist, um, she has this lovely song that is often called the Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. Let's... Um, now consider the name. Uh, to Joseph, the angel said, you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. For the Jews, names were full of meaning, especially if they were given by God. So Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua and means, O save Yahweh or Lord save and was common in those days. I think we find it um, surprising that it was a common name because to us it's very particular, it's very special, isn't it? And Jesus, we know who we're talking about. But it might become more popular in, um, in, uh, today as um, there is a Manchester City striker called Jesus um, Navas. All right? Jesus or Navas or, Je or Jesus Navas. So uh, it's still used today. But the important thing is that it says he will save his people, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. That means the whole world. So who are God's people? Since the coming of Jesus, they are those 
who will put their trust in him, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And it says, he will save his people from their sins. Consistent with Old Testament prophecies regarding the expectations of the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 53, which talks about the God-suffering servant dying for the people. However, by the time of Jesus' birth, a national liberator uh, was more the expectation of the people. We know that um, the Jews were under the domination of the Romans and quite naturally they longed for the time when then they would have a sovereign nation again, when the Romans would be kicked out. And of course, with any talk about the Messiah, that's foremost in their minds. They're looking for a liberator for the nation. Therefore, the instruction by the angel was crucial, a crucial reminder of the true mission of the Messiah and set the scene for his mission, ministry. He will save his people from their sins. So let's return now to Emmanuel, God with us. From the time of their deliverance from Egypt, through the desert and into the promised land, the distinctive feature of the Jews was that God was with them. Even their enemies knew that God was with them. This was demonstrated through pillars of cloud and fire as they were led through the wilderness. And then in that tent in the wilderness, the tabernacle, um, God's presence was manifest. And then in the temple in Jerusalem. But Jeremiah foretold a time when they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And this is Jeremiah 31. And this was to be the new covenant, the new agreement. That's what we celebrated in communion this morning. The new covenant in the blood of Jesus. The new agreement between God and man. The new way of relating to God through Jesus. During his earthly life, Jesus repeatedly revealed God the Father to people and more particularly to his disciples. And the Apostle John wrote, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And then Jesus himself said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That was an audacious statement for anybody other than the genuine Son of God. So Jesus lived here on earth as Emmanuel, God with us and one with us. We cannot now say that God who is almighty and holy and is spirit and separated from sinners does not understand our weaknesses and frailty. The writer to the Hebrews says this about Jesus as our mediator. Jesus is one now who represents us to God. It, for other, another place in Hebrews it says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he is our mediator and the writer calls him our high priest. He said, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of God is terrible and awesome. It's an awesome place. 
But now because of Jesus, because he represents us, it's now a place of help and grace and mercy. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus prepared his disciples for his return to the Father. And he said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So how will the Father and the Son come to us? Because it is to us, it's to anyone who loves him. How will the Father and the Son come? It is by the Holy Spirit. We know that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on those assembled believers, just as Jesus had promised. The Holy Spirit came to the about 120 people there, waiting for the promise of the Father. And Peter was able to say to all the people who witnessed this, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That means everyone who is called by the gospel. So the Holy Spirit now is our God with us. We may think it's a bit of a, a downgrade um, that we do not have Jesus in person with us. Uh, how many of us have thought, what would it have been like to sat at Jesus' feet? What would it have been like to see his miracles and so on? And uh, hear his, his gracious words. But Jesus himself said to his disciples, it was better that he went away. It was better that he returned to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could be given, who, unlike Jesus, could be in all places and at all times. So from now on, for all believers, God is with us by the Holy Spirit, both personally and corporately. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's referring to any believer, any believer, their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then together, the church together, when he writes to the Ephesians, he said, and in him, that's Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And we know that one of the last words that, said, that Jesus said to his disciples was, and surely... I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we're in awe and wonder of you, that you should devise such a plan to bring us to yourself, that goes beyond our human understanding, but which fills our hearts with love and worship to you, that you should honour the human race by becoming one of us. Lord, with all the things that make up Christmas, uh, all the celebrations and things, help us not to lose that sense of awe and wonder about this incredible thing that you've done. Becoming a human being, becoming one of us to be our saviour. Lord, we thank you. Amen. Going to sing a song to close our father